Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, and welcome to Love and War, a podcast from The Independent where we transport you to the trenches of the First World War and the loves and losses of the English war poets. It's 1916, and Second Lieutenant Siegfried Sassoon is contemplating the futility of fighting in a brutal, meaningless war. The landscape looks grey and withered today, and the poppies leap at you in harsh spots of flame, hectic and cruel. Sometimes, when I see my companions sleeping, rolled in their blankets, their faces turned to earth or hidden by the folds, for a moment I wonder whether they are alive or dead, for at any hour I may come upon them and find that long silence descended over them all their hope and joy snuffed out forever, and their voices fading from memory to memory, from hour to hour, until they are gone. They see me, Second Lieutenant Siegfried Sassoon of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, in the sunshine, when I must acquiesce to the evil that is war. But in the darkness of the night my soul goes down into the valley of death, and my feet move among the graves of dead youth. Stiffy, grey-eyed and sensible and shrewd. Jowett, dark-eyed and lover-like and wistful. How long have you to live, you, in the perfection of youth, your pride of living, your ignorance of life's narrowing road? Oh, let my pity be poured out upon you. Let my love be spent to make yours more happy. And if you must die, and I be left alone... Let me be strong to endure the injustice. This is how a poet is made. Through love and war. The longing, the feeling, the lust, the rage, the despair. Isn't love in the red mouths and red wounds and pale young faces peering out from under steel hats? Isn't it the winding of puttees over a strong calf? The muddy fingers running through dirty blonde hair? The clear blue eyes half-lidded over a smile, smile, smile. Above all, isn't it the boy who died last night laying new wire across no man's land? Charles Sawley, only twenty, was one of those young men. Only, I think, once or twice do you stumble across that person into whom you fit at once before whom you can stand naked, all disclosed. For much of his time in the trenches in 1915, Sawley wasn't sure he was up to the awful job he'd been given. 
commanding men in battle, and he wanted nothing better than to be with Arthur Watts, whom he'd met and spent a glorious summer with in Germany only a year earlier. An Englishman abroad then, now an intelligence officer of the war office, who'd become the one into whom one fits at once. There's something rotten in the state of something. I feel it, but cannot be definite of what. Not even is there the premonition of something big impending, gathering and ready to burst. Mutual helplessness and lassitude. There's been two boxers who have battered each other crouch, waiting for the other to hit. So one lives in a year ago, and a year hence. What are your feet doing a year hence, my dearest Arthur? For that feeling of stoniness, too old at fortiness, the late afternoon of which you speak is only you among strangers, you and Babylon. You were forty when I first saw you, thirty, donnish, and well-mannered when you first asked me to tea, but later at tennis you were any age. You'll be always forty to strangers, perhaps, and, well, after all, friends are the same age. There is really very little to say about the life here. Change of circumstance, I find, means little compared to the change of company. They are... they are extraordinarily close, really, these friendships of circumstance, distinct as they remain from friendships of choice. I'm sure that any gathering of men will lead to a very, very close friendship between them all. So there has really been no change in coming over here. The change is to come and half of this improvised band of brothers are wiped away in a day. We're learning to be soldiers slowly, that is to say, adopting the soldierly attitude of complete disconnection with our job during odd hours. No shop. So when I think I should tell you something about the trenches, I, I find I have neither the inclination nor the power. But what encouraged us, Robert Graves, Wilfred Owen, poor Ivor Gurney, and even Sawley, and kept us going, returning to the trenches when there was strictly no need, or defying the cant of stay-at-home warriors, if not our capacity for love. Edward Carpenter, that prophet of homosexual liberation, had told us how homosexuals were set apart, with particular gifts for art and poetry, their role to teach the world to love. We all read this, and believed it. It was our purpose, our right, if you will, to crystallise that love. And poetry was still the language of love in 1916. Red lips are not so red as the stained stones kissed by the English dead. Kindness of wooed and wooer seems shame to their love pure. O oh, love, your eyes lose lure when I behold eyes blinded by my stead. Your slender attitude trembles not exquisite, like limbs knife-skewed, rolling and rolling there where God seems not to care. To the fierce love they bear cramps them in death's extreme decrepitude. Your voice sings not so soft, though even as wind murmuring through raftered loft, your dear voice is not dear, gentle and evening clear, as theirs whom none now hear, now earth has stopped their piteous mouths that coughed. Heart you were never hot, nor large, nor full like hearts made great with shot. And though your hand be pale, 
Paler are all which trail your cross through flame and hail. Weep. You may weep, for you may touch them not. Little Wilfred Owen. I did love the fellow. Hardly a gentleman, but the finest poet of them all. A Keats of the trenches, I suppose, who was always so terribly concerned about what others thought, he sometimes missed his own genius. When I came in from work at four o'clock, I had no idea it was Sunday, it often happens so, Captain Sorrel gave me the choice of writing a sonnet before 7.30 or going with the next fatigue party. I'm ever so happy to be with him. He chokes filthiness as summarily as I ever heard a captain do, or try to do. He is himself an aesthete, and not virtuous according to English standards, perhaps, but no man swears in his presence, nor broaches those pleasantries which so amuse the English officer's mind. He seems to be one of the few young men who live up to my principle, that amusement is never an excuse for immorality, but that passion may be so. Owen was a watcher, an intercessor, who wanted to tell the stories of the men who fought and suffered. Sawley, I think, was a very different creature, a sensualist in the body of a young Puritan, with no belief in anything other than what his fingers, his his tongue, his eyes told him. The wind, the rain, the taste of a particular meal. Greedy for it. Just a line, my dearest Arthur, albeit on military ruled paper. It is the eve of our crowning hour. I am bleached with chalk and grown hairy. And I think exultantly and sweetly of the one, two, or three outstandingly admirable meals of my life. One in Yorkshire, in an inn upon the moors, with a fire of logs and ale and tea and every sort of Yorkshire bakery, especially bears me company. And yet another in Germany, where they are very English, in a farmhouse utterly at peace in Broadfields, sloping to the sea. I remember a tureen of champagne in the middle of the table, to which we helped ourselves with ladles. I remember my hunger after three hours ride over the country and the fishing town lying like an English town on the sea. In that great old farmhouse where I dined at 3pm as the mayday began to cool, fruit of sea and of land joined hands together, fish fresh caught and ducks fresh killed. It was a wedding of the elements. It was perhaps the greatest meal I have had ever, for everything we ate had been alive that morning. The champagne was alive yet. Twas American, its memory fills many hungry hours. Someone wrote to Sawley's father after the young poet was killed in action near Luz, late in 1915. The usual fiasco, as a delay between the necessary bombardment and the order for officers to blow their whistles, meant that going over the top became a charge into rapidly thinning smoke and deadly machine-gun fire. Sawley's commanding officer fell, and Sawley tried to rally his men. But for a moment... The sniper had his fine head in his sights, and the young poet dropped dead. His body was never found. Well, this unknown officer at the front had read the collection of poetry Sawley's father had published, in memoriam, so to speak, and he was haunted with a sense of personal loss, though he didn't know the boy. One poem was found in Sawley's kit bag. Perfect. 
is last. When you see millions of the mouthless dead across your dreams in pale battalions go, say not soft things as other men have said that you'll remember, for you need not so. Give them not praise. For death, how should they know it is not curses heaped on each gashed head? No tears. Their blind eyes see not your tears flow. Nor honour. It is easy to be dead. Say only this. They are dead. Then are dead too. Yet many a better one has died before. Then, scanning all the overcrowded mass, should you perceive one faith that you loved heretofore? It is a spook. None wears the face you knew. Great death has made all his forevermore. I've just discovered a brilliant young poet called Sawley, whose poems have just appeared in the Cambridge Press. Marlborough and other poems, three shillings, sixpence, and who was killed near Luce on October 13th as a temporary captain in the 7th Suffolk Regiment. It seems ridiculous to fall in love with a dead man, as I have found myself doing, but he seems to have been one so entirely after my own heart in his loves and hates, besides having been just my own age and having spent just the same years at Marlborough as I spent at Charterhouse. He got a classical scholarship at University College, Oxford, the same year as I was up, and I half remember meeting him there. Robert Graves once asked me if I thought that Sawley was so, meaning, I, I suppose, homosexual. He wrote no conventional love lyrics, he said, and it reminded me of something a wounded officer once asked me about my poetry, why there were no women in it. I said they didn't fit with my philosophy. But Graves soon caught the potential of Sawley's poetry, its, its modernity and passionate disavowal of hatred. Such, such is death. No triumph, no defeat. Only an empty pail, a slate rubbed clean, a merciful putting away of what has been. And this we know. Death is not life a feat, life crushed, the broken pail. We who have seen so marvellous things know well the end not yet. Victor and vanquished are one in death, coward and brave, friend, foe. Ghosts do not say, come, what was your record when you drew breath? But a big blot has hid each yesterday, so poor, so manifestly incomplete. And your bright promise, withered long and sped, is touched, stirs, rises, opens and grows sweet and blossoms and is you when you are dead. Another of the war's pin-ups was Rupert Brooke, the original, in fact, St. Sebastian in khaki, his beauty undiminished by cropped hair and military tailoring, his tremendous popularity at home and at the front, the unabashed sensuality of his final publication, 1914 and other poems, greeted at the time with almost delirious abandon, are what have made him so hated by critics ever since. Blow out, you bugles, over the rich dead. There's none of these so lonely and poor of old but dying. 
has made us rarer gifts than gold. These laid the world away, poured out the red sweet wine of youth, gave up the years to be of work and joy, and that unhoped serene that men call age, and those who would have been their sons they gave, their immortality. Blow, bugles, blow! They brought us for our dearth, holiness, lacked so long, and love and pain. Honour has come back as a king to earth, and paid his subjects with a royal wage, and nobleness walks in our ways again, and we have come into our heritage. I didn't know Brooke at Cambridge, though my poor brother Hamo did. I met him once, just before war broke out, at breakfast in Eddie Marsh's rooms in London. I was tongue-tied. He was the epitome of the poet, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. I think he humoured me, and I had the distinctly uncomfortable feeling that he didn't find me attractive. Occasionally I'm faintly shaken by a suspicion that I might find incredible beauty in the washing place with rows of naked, superb men bathing in a September sun, or in the camp at night under a full moon, faint lights burning through the ghostly tents, and a distant bugler blowing lights out. If only I was sensitive. But I'm not. I'm a warrior. So I think of nothing and go to bed. Move him into the sun. Gently its touch awoke him once, at home, whispering of fields unsown. Always it woke him, even in France, until this morning and this snow. If anything might rouse him now, the kind old sun will know. Think how it wakes the seeds, woke once the clays of a cold star. A limbs so dear achieved, Sides full nerved, still warm, too hard to stir. Was it for this the clay grew tall? Or what made fatuous sunbeams toil to break earth's sleep at all? Tonight I am hungry for music, and still the guns boom, and the battle goes on three miles away, and, and Graves is somewhere in it, if he hasn't been shot already. Blighty. What a world of idle nothingness the name stands for, and what a world of familiar delightfulness. Oh, God! When shall I get out of this limbo? For I'm never alone here, never my old self, always, always acting a part, that of the cheery, reckless sportsman out for a dip at the Boches. But the men love me, and that's one great consolation. And someday, perhaps, I'll be alone in a room full of books again, with a piano glimmering in the corner, the glory in my head, and, and a new poem in my workbook. Now the rain begins to patter on the tent, and the dull thudding of the guns comes from Albert Way, and I've still got my terrible way to tread before I'm free to sleep, with Rupert Brooke and Sawley, and all the nameless poets of the war.
David Thomas was a young lieutenant in the Welsh Fusiliers. Blonde, beautiful, an athlete who devoured poems like a hungry lion cub. I always remarked that he should take more care of himself. Whenever he was sent on patrol, he'd stay out nearly an hour and a half, going right up to the Bosch wire. One day, David and I rode over the rolling uplands and through an occasional strip of woodland, with the sun shining and big clouds moving prosperously on a boisterous northwest wind. We rode to a little village six or seven miles away and had tea at an unbelievable shop where the cakes were as good as anything in Amiens. I wouldn't like to say how many we ate, but the evening star shone benevolently down on us from among a drift of rosy clouds while we were cantering home to Morlancourt. I glanced at David and thought what a young Galahad he looked. Last night? Oh, lucky me! A Scottish rifle sat up beside the stove with me, which glowed and made believe it was fire, and he had travelled and could talk, and we had the same politics and the same tastes. His eyes were steady, his laugh open and easily provoked, and a smile that could not be long checked, being chiefly an affair of the eyes. Oh well, it must have been twelve-thirty when we illicitly walked under the stars watching Orion and hearing his huge, sustained chord. That is Ivor Gurney, a private soldier in the Gloucesters. I never knowingly encountered him during the war. He groped through life under a blanket of sadness. A fine musician, a poet of the countryside, transplanted to the city and then to the hell of total warfare. Inspired by snatches of moonlight through trees and the wind on the plains of Picardy, which so reminded him of the Severn Valley. When we were idle in our minds amongst the sandbags and falling bombs, Gurney composed beautiful songs with a bit of pencil on a tattered notebook. Will Harvey, who met Gurney at school in Gloucester, became the object of his passions and the muse of his poetry, including an early rhapsodic sunset walk remembered later in a supply-line trench in France. Out of the smoke and dust of the little room, with tea-talk loud and laughter of happy boys, I passed into the dusk. Suddenly the noise ceased with a shock, left me alone in the gloom, to wonder at the miracle hanging high, tangled in twigs, the silver crescent clear. Time passed from mind, time died, and then we were once more at home together you and I. The elms with arms of love wrapped us in shade, who watched the ecstatic west with one desire, one soul uprapped, and still another fire consumed us, and our joy yet greater made. That Bach should sing for us, mix us in one, the joy of firelight and the sunken sun. We are the homeless, even as you, who hope and never can begin. Our hearts are wounded through and through, like yours, but our hearts bleed within. We too make music, but our tones scape not the barrier of our bones. We have no comeliness like you. We toil unlovely and we spin. We start, return, 
we wind undo. We hope, we err, we strive, we sin, we love. Your love's not greater, but the lips of our loves might stay shut. We have the evil spirits too that shake our soul with battle din. We have an eviler spirit than you. We have a dumb spirit within. The exceeding bitter agony, but not the exceeding bitter cry. Maybe Charles Sawley was too young to feel the true bitterness of love, but not too young to know that some loves could never be sung from the hilltops. God knows I've wanted to. But I remained as chaste as Galahad throughout the conflict. Mine eyes feasted, my body did not. It took a Rupert Brook, with the confidence of a god, to brag about that kind of love. Writing before the war to James Strachey, who'd been in love with him forever, he gave an account of his first sexual encounter. We stirred and pressed. The tides seemed to wax. At the right moment, I, as planned, said, come into my room, it's better there. I suppose Denham knew what I meant. Anyhow, he followed me. In that larger bed, it was cold. We clung together. Intentions became plain, but still nothing was said. I broke away a second as the dance began to slip my pyjamas. His was the woman's part throughout. I had to make him take his off, do it for him. There it was purely body to body. My first, you know. I was still a little frightened of his at any too sudden step, bolting, and he, I suppose, was shy. We kissed very little, face to face. And I only rarely handled his penis. Mine, he touched once with his fingers, and that made me shiver so much. I think he was frightened. But with alternate stirrings and still pressure, we mounted. My right hand got hold of the left half of his bottom, clutched it, and pressed his body into me. The smell of sweat began to be noticeable. At length, we took to rolling to and fro over each other in the excitement. The waves grew more terrific. My control of the situation was over. I treated him with the utmost violence, to which he more quietly but incessantly responded. Half under him and half over, I came off. I think he came off at the same time, but of that I have never been sure. A silent moment, and then he slips away to his room, carrying his pyjamas. We wished each other good night. I lit a candle after he'd gone. There was a dreadful mess on the bed. I wiped it as clear as I could and left the place exposed in the air to dry. I sat on the lower part of the bed, a blanket round me, and stared at the wall and thought. I thought of innumerable things. That this was all. That the boasted jump from virginity to knowledge seemed a very tiny affair after all. 
that I hoped Denham, for whom I felt great tenderness, was sleeping. He wasn't entirely showing off, but with a kind of strange premonition of the death awaiting millions of young men, Brooke was writing exactly the sort of letter it would fall to my lot to send when the man in my platoon had taken a bullet for king and country. But this was a sudden death, outside of wartime. So you'll understand it was, not with a shock, for I'm far too dead for that, but with a sort of dreary wonder and dizzy discomfort, that I heard that Denham died at one o'clock on Wednesday morning, just twenty-four hours ago now. Graves was feeling nostalgic for his school days at Charterhouse that spring, and the love of his life, Peter. The thought of that ideal youth was what kept him going amid the horror and the blood-soaked mud, I suppose. I've watched the seasons passing slow, so slow, in the fields between La Bassier and Bethune. Primroses, and the first warm day of spring, red poppy floods of June, August and the yellowing autumn, so to winter nights knee-deep in mud or snow, and you've been everything. Dear, you've been everything that I most lack in these soul-deadening trenches. Pictures, books, music, the quiet of an English wood, Beautiful comrade looks, the narrow, bolded mountain track, the broad, full-bosomed ocean, green and black, and peace, and all that's good. Riding out to the trenches, the sky at 6.30 was angry with a red, smoky sunset. The village loomed against the glow. It was a sultry, threatening dusk. But when I came home at ten o'clock, everything was covered with exquisite moonlight. A great star hung over Morlancourt, unbelievably bright in the pale azure heavens. This morning came the evil news from the trenches. First, that Richardson had died of wounds after being knocked over by a shell last night in front of the trenches. This was bad. But they came afterwards and told me that my little David had been hit by a stray bullet and died last night. I felt David's death worse than any other since I had been in France, but it did not anger me as it did Siegfried. He was acting transport officer, and every evening now, when he came up with the rations, went out on patrol looking for Germans to kill. I just felt empty and lost. When last I saw David, two nights ago, he had this notebook in his hand, reading my last poem, and I said good-night to him in the moonlit trenches. Had I but known the old human weak cry. Now he comes back to me in memories, like an angel with the light in his yellow hair, 
So after lunch I escaped into the woods, and grief had its way with me in the sultry thicket, and I lay under the smooth bole of a birch tree, wandering, longing for the bodily presence that was so fair. So I wrote his name in chalk on the birch tree stem, and left a rough garland of ivy there, and a yellow primrose for his yellow hair and kind grey eyes. My dear, my dear. Walking through trees to cool my heat and pain, I know that David's with me here again. All that is simple, happy, strong, he is. Caressingly I stroke rough bark of the friendly oak. A brook goes bubbling by, the voice is his. Turf burns with pleasant smoke. I laugh at chaffinch and at primroses, and all that is simple, happy, strong he is. Over the whole wood in a little while breaks his slow smile. Ah, oh, but there was no need to call his name. He was beside me now, as swift as light. I knew him crushed to earth in scentless flowers and lifted in the rapture of dark pines. For now, he said, my spirit has more eyes than heaven has stars, and they are lit by love. My body is the magic of the world, and dawn and sunset flame with my spilt blood. My breath is the great wind, and I am filled with molten power and surge of the bright waves that chant my doom along the ocean's edge. My heart is fooled with fancies, being wise. For fancy is the gleaming of wet flowers, when the hid sun looks forth with golden stare. Thus, when I find new loveliness to praise, and things long known shine out in sudden grace, then I will think, he moves before me now, so he will never come but in delight. And as it was in life, his name shall be Wonder, awaking in a summer dawn, and youth, that dying, touched my lips to song. The thing that fills my mind most is that Willie Harvey, my best friend, went out on patrol a week ago and never came back. It does not make very much difference. For two years I have had only the most fleeting glimpses of him. But we were firm enough in love. I do not look ever for a closer bond, though I live long and am as lucky in friendship as heretofore. He was full of unsatisfied longings. A doctor would have called it neurasthenia, but that term covers many things, and in him it meant partly an idealism that could not be contented with realities. His ordinary look was gloomy, but on being spoken to he gladdened one with the most beautiful of smiles, and all who knew him and understood him must not only have liked him merely, but loved him. Had he lived, a great poet might have developed from him, could he only obtain the gift of serenity. As a soldier, or rather, as I would say, a man, 
He was dauntlessly brave, and bravery in others stirred him, not only to the most generous recognition, but also, unfortunately, to an insatiable desire to surpass that. His desire for nobility and sacrifice was insatiable, and was at last his doom, but his friends may be excused for desiring a better ending than that probable of a sniper's bullet in no man's land. If the fates send that I live to a great age and attain fullness of days and honour, nothing can alter my memory of him or the evenings we spent together. All violet, frosty evenings will be full of him, and the perfectest evening of autumn will but recall him the more vividly to my memory. And if I have the good fortune ever to meet with such another, he has a golden memory to contend with. Harvey was captured by the Germans when his patrol strayed too close to their lines. He wasn't dead. He'd eventually escape. At about the same time, I heard that poor Robert Graves had been killed during that endless carnage known as the Battle of the Somme. So I go my way alone again. My dear assassins, I hope you haven't taken the casualty list seriously again. They are fools. I'm right as rain and hope before many days to be up in glorious Marioneth again, basking in the sun and storing up a large mass of solar energy against our great Caucasus trip après la guerre. The rumor of my death was started by the regimental doctor and the field ambulance one, swearing I couldn't possibly live. But it takes a lot to kill youth and ugliness however easily youth and beauty fade and die. Tibbs has written me a ripping letter apologising about the mistake. Eddie tells me you were quite sad about my demise. Dear old thing, I hope you didn't avenge me with bombs or do anything rash. He's gone, and all our plans are useless indeed. We'll walk no more on Cotswold, where the sheep feed quietly and take no heed. His body that was so quick is not as you knew it. On Severn River, under the blue, driving our small boat through. You would not know him now, but still he died, nobly. So cover him over with violets of pride, purple from Severn's side. Cover him, cover him soon, and with thick-set masses of memoried flowers, hide that red, wet thing I must somehow forget. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. To these I turn, in these I trust, brother led and sister steel. To his blind power I make appeal, I guard her beauty clean from rust. He spins and burns and loves the air and splits a skull to win my praise. But up the nobly marching days she glitters naked, cold and fair. Sweet sister, grant your soldier this that in good fury he may feel the body where he sets his heel quail from your downward darting kiss. The machine guns are the most terrifying sound, like an awful pack of hellhounds at one's back. It left me exalted and exalting. I am tired of this war. It bores me. But I would not willingly give up such a memory of such a time. Everything went wrong, and there was a tiny pause at first. But everybody, save the officers, were doing what they ought to do, and settled down later to the proper job. Wars damned interesting. It would be hard indeed to be deprived of all this artist's material now. Gurney was right. I wanted my own genuine taste of the horrors, and, and then peace. I didn't want to go back to the old, inane life, which always seemed like a prison. I wanted freedom, not comfort. I have seen beauty in life, in men, in things, but I can never be a great poet or a great lover, for I have met such. I met Wilfred Owen at Craig Lockhart Hospital outside Edinburgh in the summer of 1917. I was there because after months of raging and lobbing grenades at German patrols in the hope of killing enough to make up for the death of one, my poor David, I was mad enough to object to the conduct of the war in its entirety, in print, throwing my MC medal in the Mersey for good measure. Owen was there because he was, well, a little mad. Let the boy try along this bayonet blade how cold steel is and keen with hunger of blood. Blue with all malice like a madman's flash and thinly drawn with famishing for flesh. Lend him to stroke these blind, blunt bullet leads which long to nuzzle in the hearts of lads or give him cartridges of fine zinc teeth sharp with the sharpness of grief and death for his teeth seem for laughing round an apple. There lurk no claws behind his fingers supple, and God will grow no talons at his heels, nor antlers through the thickness of his curls. Owen's doctor had suggested he explore his feelings in verse. He was a little too in love with the old ways then, and with himself, so I suggested he read sorely, and suggested changes to some of his more purple passages, and I introduced him to Graves, and Churchill's flamboyant secretary, Eddie Marsh, and Robbie Ross, Oscar Wilde's old lover, and all the glorious iniquity of London. 
mea culpa. Dearest of all friends, here is an address which will serve for a few days. The sun is warm, the sky is clear, the waves are dancing fast and bright. But these are not lines written in dejection. Serenity Shelley never dreamed of crowns me. Will it last when I shall have gone into caverns and abysmals such as he never reserved for his worst demons? Yesterday I went down to Folkestone Beach and into the sea, thinking to go through those stanzas and emotions of Shelley's to the full. But I was too happy, or the sun was too supreme. Moreover, there issued from the sea distraction in the shape, shape, I say, but lay no stress on that, of a harrow boy of superb intellect and refinement. Intellect because he hates war more than Germans, refinement because of the way he spoke of my going, and of the sun, and of the sea there, and the way he spoke of everything. In fact, the way he spoke. Tell me how you are. With great and painful firmness, I have not said you goodbye from England. If you had said in the heart or brain, you might have stabbed me, but you said only in the leg. So I was afraid. Perhaps if I write anything in dugouts or talk in my sleep, a squad of riflemen will save you the trouble of buying a dagger. It's as if we just couldn't keep away. Even my refusal to report for duty, the letter of resignation in the Times, all that, all that fuss, led to very little. Weeks of chatting to Dr. Rivers by a Scottish lock and a renewed determination to do my bit for the men to the very end. But meeting with little Wilfred Owen, that was one of the great moments of my life. I am the ghost of Shadwell's there, along the wharves by the waterhouse and through the dripping slaughterhouse. I am the shadow that walks there. Yet I have flesh both firm and cool and eyes tumultuous as the gems of moons and lamps in the lapping Thames, when dusk sails wavering down the pool. Shuddering, the purple street arc burns where I watch, always, from the banks, dolorously, the shipping clanks, and after me a strange tide turns. I walk till the stars of London wane, and dawn creeps up the Shadwell stair. But when the crowing sirens blare, I with another ghost am lain. There are moments, there have been several, especially in the Aegean, when through some beauty of sky and air and earth, some harmony of the mind, Peace is complete, and completely satisfying. And there are men who seem to do what one so terribly can't, and so terribly at these moments aches to do. Store up reservoirs of this calm and content, fill and seal great jars or pitchers during these half hours, and draw on them at later moments, when the source isn't there. But the need is very great. On his way to the Dardanelles, Rupert Brooke had become quite morbid, like all of us. And death, or rather death in battle, occupied his thoughts. 
almost crowding out thoughts of love and the reasons why he was there in the first place, confusion about his life, his loves, the love of the young men around him, the sense that he was on his way to his own Troy, sailing the seas Odysseus and Achilles had known. He wrote what would be his last verses, far from the certainty of his famous sonnets, on the troopship, taking him to Gallipoli. I strayed about the deck an hour tonight under a cloudy moonless sky, and peeped in at windows, and watched my friends at table, or playing cards, or standing in the doorway, or coming out into the darkness. Still, no one could see me. I would have thought of them, heedless within a week of battle, in pity, pride in their strength and in the weight and firmness and linked beauty of bodies, and pity that this gay machine of splendour soon be broken, thought little of, pashed, scattered. Only always I could but see them against the lamplight, pass like coloured shadows, thinner than filmy glass, slight bubbles, fainter than the waves' faint light that broke to phosphorus out in the night, perishing things and strange ghosts, soon to die to other ghosts, this one or that or I. It was off Skiros, Achilles' isle, where the hero had been hidden by his mother to keep him from the Trojan War and an early death, that Brooke was stretched into a small boat and rowed to a hospital ship. He was suffering from blood poisoning, probably caused by an infected mosquito bite. Opening his eyes feebly for the last time, Hello, he said, to Dennis Brown, his oldest and dearest friend, who, like Patroclus to Brooks Achilles, had followed him into the same regiment and the same theatre of war, and would soon follow through the unknown door. Brown and others would bury him on Skiros a day or so later. He was far too obsessed with his own sacrifice regarding the going to war of himself and others as a highly intense, remarkable and sacrificial exploit, whereas it is merely the conduct demanded of him and others by the turn of circumstances. But then the drama of his going was so irresistible, I suppose. Soldiers with torches lining the rough footpath. Burly Australians carrying his coffin, covered in palm fronds, the martyr's palm and the Union flag. Lanterns, a wooden cross cut that day by men from Blook's platoon. A firing party and friends under a drifting moon reached the spot, beneath a drooping olive tree where he was to be laid in Achilles' earth. The lamps flared in the sudden breeze, sage and thyme and mint mingling, the old Greek divinity stirring from their long sleep. Now God be thanked, who has matched us with his hour, and caught our youth, and wakened us from sleeping with hand made sure, clear eye and sharpened power, to turn as swimmers into cleanness leaping, glad from a world grown old and cold and weary, 
leave the sick hearts that honour could not move, and half-men, and their dirty songs and dreary, and all the emptiness of love. O oh, we who have known shame, we have found release there, where there's no ill, no grief, but sleep has mending, naught broken save this body, lost but breath, nothing to shake the laughing heart's long peace there, but only agony, and that has ending. And the worst friend and enemy is but death. It is only fair to tell you that since the cataclysm of my friend Peter, my affections are running in the more normal channels, and I correspond regularly and warmly with Nancy Nicholson, who is great fun. I only tell you this so that you should get out of your head any misconceptions of my temperament. I should hate you to think that I was a confirmed homosexual, even if it were only in my thought and went no farther. Poor Peter. He'd been caught with a Canadian soldier at the school gates one evening, and someone, a cousin or other, unkindly thought to let Robert Graves know. I don't think Graves ever got over it. I couldn't go to his and Nancy Nicholson's wedding in January 1918. I was still doing my penance for flirting with pacifism. I thought it a little too precipitate, though. Owen went and said it was an odd affair, and Nancy an odd girl— pretty but nowise handsome, more like a boy, he said. But Owen had his own preoccupations then. My dear Sassoon, when I had opened your envelope in a quiet corner of the club staircase, I sat on the stairs and groaned a little, and then went up and oozed off a gourd, a gothic vacuum of a letter, which I put by, as you would recommend for such effusions, until I could think over the thing. I have also waited for this photograph. I imagined you were entrusting me with some holy secret concerning yourself. A secret, however, it shall be until such time as I shall have climbed to the housetops and you to the minarets of the world. This fact has not intensified my feelings for you by the least. Know that since mid-September, when you still regarded me as a tiresome little knocker on your door, I held you as Keats, plus Christ, plus Elijah, plus my Colonel, plus my Father Confessor, plus a Menifice Fourth in profile. What's that, mathematically? In effect, it is this, that I love you, dispassionately, so much, so very much, dear fellow, that the blasting little smile you wear on reading this can't hurt me in the least. And you have fixed my life however short. You did not like me. I was always a mad comet, but you have fixed me. I spun round you a satellite for a month, but I shall swing out soon, a dark star in the orbit where you will blaze. It is some consolation to know that Jupiter himself sometimes swims out of Ken.
Rain there was. Tired and weak I was, glad for an end. But one spoke to me, one I liked well as a friend. Let's volunteer for the front line. Many others won't. I'll volunteer. It's better being there than here. But I had seen too many ditches and stood too long, feeling my feet freeze and my shoulders ache with the strong pull of equipment and too much use of pain and strain. Besides, he was a lance corporal and might be full corporal before the next straw resting might come again, before the next billet should hum with talk and song. Stars looked as well from second as from first line holes. England. I am sick of the sound of the word. In training to fight for England, I'm training to fight for that deliberate hypocrisy, that terrible middle-class sloth of outlook, and appalling imaginative indolence that has marked us out from generation to generation. Goliath and Caiaphas, the Philistine and the Pharisee, pound these together and there you have suburbia and Westminster and Fleet Street. Youth is a terrible burden at least for someone like Charles Sawley, a baggage of promise and perfection and fine blood that doesn't always come off. We were, of necessity, young. Some like Sawley and Graves, terribly young. But then war was a young man's business. A great many were bound to die. There's a sort of crass inevitability about it. It is pitiful for a young man to die in the horror of battle, in a cold, drenched trench. But it is also a glorious sacrifice, too. So says Brooke. So says Sawley, who had no truck with jingoism. I dread my own censorious self in the coming conflict. I also have a great physical dread of pain. Still, a good edge is given to the sword here, and one learns to be a servant. The soul is disciplined. So much for me. But the good it would do in your case, my dear Arthur, is that it would discipline your liver. The first need of man is health. And I wish it you for your happiness, though somehow I seem to know you more closely when you are fighting a well-fought battle with ill health. Adieu, or chances three to one in favour of the pleasant alternative. I'll free the same. Pray that I ride my frisky nerves with a cool and steady hand when the time arrives. And you don't know how much I long for our next meeting. Not this week nor this month dare I lie down in languor under lime trees or smooth smile. Love must not kiss my face pale that is brown. My lips, panting, shall drink space mile by mile. Strong meats be all my hunger. My renown be the clean beauty of speed and pride of style. Cold winds encountered on the racing down shall thrill my heated bareness, but a while none else may meet me till I wear my crown. Like little Owen, I was still determined to go back and fight. The angry, arrogant, secret pride of youth saying, 
I'll go back and get killed just to spite these old men. The whole thing is a combination of sex repression, war-weariness, vanity and pride, with a little decent feeling and a touch of nerves chucked in. A war cocktail. And above all, that eternal, insane hankering for death. One day I will write something. It is to be one of the stepping stones across the raging or lethargic river of intolerance which divides creatures of my temperament from a free and unsecretive existence amongst their fellow men. A mere self-revelation, however spontaneous or clearly expressed, can never achieve as much as... Well, imagine another Madame Bovary dealing with sexual inversion, a book that the world must recognise and learn to understand. Until then, secrets. My dearest Siegfried, some day I must tell you how we sang, shouted, whistled and danced through the dark lanes through Collington, and how we laughed till the meteors showered around us, and we fell calm under the winter stars. And some of us saw the pathway of the spirits for the first time, and seeing it so far above us, and feeling the good road so safe beneath us, we knew we loved one another, as no men love for long. Which, if the bridge players Craig and Lockhart could have seen, they would have called down the wrath of Yahweh, and buried us under the fires of the city you wot of. To which also it is time you committed this letter. I wish you were less undemonstrative for I have many adjectives with which to qualify myself. As it is, I can only say I am your proud friend, Owen. I never asked you to be perfect, did I? Though often I've called you sweet in the invasion of mastering love. I never prayed that you might stand unsoiled, angelic and inhuman, pointing the way towards sainthood like a signpost. Oh, yes. I know the way to heaven was easy. We found the little kingdom of our passion that all can share who walk the road of lovers. Wild and secret happiness we stumbled, and gods and demons clamoured in our senses. But I have grown thoughtful now, and you have lost your early morning freshness of surprise at being so utterly mine. You have learned to fear the gloomy, stricken places in my soul and the occasional ghosts that haunt my gaze. You dream long liturgies of our devotion, yet in my heart I dread our love's destruction. But should you grow to hate me, I would ask no mercy of your mood. I'd have you stand and look me in the eyes and laugh and smite me. Then I should know, at least, that truth endured, though love had died of wounds and you could leave me unvanquished in my atmosphere of devils. Wow. 
Why does this war of spirits take on such dread forms of ugliness? And why should a high triumph be signified by a body shattered, black, stinking, avoided by day, stumbled over by night, and offence to the hardest? What consolation can be given me as I look upon it and endure it? Any? Sufficient? The end of war? Who knows? For the thing for which so great a price is paid is yet doubtful and obscure. God should have done better for us than this. Could he not have found some better, milder way of changing the Prussian whom he made than by the breaking of such beautiful souls? Now that is what one should write poetry upon. I have made a book about beauty because I have paid the price which five years ago had not been paid. Gassed out of the line in September 1917, Ivor Gurney's war was over. Until one day, he walked into a police station and asked for a gun with which to kill himself, saying he was a criminal who deserved it. His crime? Loving too much? It seems his war was never really over. There are strange hells within the mines war made, not so often not so humiliating afraid as one would have expected. The racket and fear guns made. One hell the Gloucester soldiers they quite put out. Their first bombardment. When in combined black shout of fury, guns aligned, they ducked low their heads and sang with diaphragms fixed beyond all dreads. That tin and stretched wire tinkle, that blither of tune, après la guerre finie till hell all had come down, twelve-inch, six-inch, and eighteen-pounders hammering hell's thunders. Where are they now? On state dolls, or showing shop patterns, or walking town to town, sore in borrowed tattens, or begged? Some civic routine one never learns. The heart burns, but has to keep out of face how heart Burns. Welcome, Gurney. Good Gurney. You've been broken on the wheel a long time, but you're welcome here now. Benching on the embankment, dripping hedgerow sleeps. You've lived beneath a suffocation of Dartford hospital beds and steel-eyed orderlies for too long. We have found safety with all things undying here. The winds, the morning, Tears of men, and mirth, and sleep, and freedom, and the autumnal earth. We have gained a peace unshaken by pain forever. And for your love, and your music, Gurney, for which I thank you, safe shall be your going there, safe though all safety's lost, safe where men fall, and now your poor limbs die safest of all. You have been out in front at night in that no-man's land in Long Graveyard long enough. There is a freedom and a spur here, and death and the horrible thankfulness. Unseen hands hauling in the great resistless body in the dark, your poor smashed head rattling. The relief, the relief that what has made the musician an animal has now made the animal a corpse, purged of all false pity, perhaps more selfish than before, but godlike now in your knowingness. After 15 years of an asylum in Kent, a victim of the war, of cruelty, of neglect, 
Ivor Gurney effectively starved to death in 1937. He left some of the finest music written by an Englishman in those years, and some of the war's truest poetry. Forgotten now, dropped like an unwanted flyer, full of strange fancies, snatches of love and beauty and horror, and a longing to know what lies beyond. He would sit for hours with a map of Gloucestershire, tracking favourite walks with a finger, longing for escape. They said if he went back, he might kill himself. But oh, for even an hour of humane bliss, of joy and beauty before he did so. Death drifts the brain with dust and soils the young limb's glory. Death makes justice a dream and strength a traveller's story. Death drives the lovely soul to wander under the sky. Death opens unknown doors. It is most grand to die. My dear Siegfried, the battalion had a sheer time last week. It is a strange truth that your counterattack frightened me much more than the real one. Though the boy by my side, shot through the head, lay on top of me, soaking my shoulder for half an hour. Catalogue? Photograph? Can, can you photograph the crimson hot iron as it cools from the smelting? That is what Jones's blood looked like and felt like. My senses are charred. I shall feel again as soon as I dare, but now I must not. I don't take the cigarette out of my mouth when I write deceased over their letters. One day I will write deceased over many books. I'm glad I've been recommended for MC, full of confidence after having taken a few machine guns with the help of one seraphic Lance Corporal. I held a most glorious brief peace talk in a pillbox. You would have been on Bamasons all in a swoon. On Armistice Day, I learnt that Owen had been killed. About a week before, he was shot dead crossing a dank canal, just as his MC came through. So many dead and grave survives to say goodbye to all that. I suppose most of Owen's poetry, most war poetry, was very frequently due to an insupportable conflict between suppressed instincts of love and fear. The officer's actual love, which he could never openly show for the boys he commanded, and the fear of the horrible death that threatened them all. My poems were journalistic. Sassoon and Wilfred Owen were homosexuals, though Sassoon tried to think he wasn't. To them, seeing men killed was as horrible as if you and I had to see fields of corpses of women. Oh, the joy! I crawled into the dugout, not high but fairly large, lit by a candle, and so met four of the most delightful young men that could be met anywhere. 
thin-faced and bright-eyed, their faces showed beautifully against the soft glow of the candlelight, and their musical voices delightful after the long march at attention in silence. We talked of Welsh folk song, of George Burroughs, of Burns, of the RCM, of, yes, of Oscar Wilde, Omar Khayyam, and Shakespeare. They spoke of their friends dead or maimed in the bombardment. I sat there and gave them all my love for their tenderness, their steadfastness and kindness to raw fighters and very raw signalers. Once we were standing outside our dugout cleaning nestings when a cuckoo sounded its call from the shattered wood at the back. This Welshman turned to me passionately. Listen to that damned bird, he said. All through the bombardment in the pauses, I could hear that infernal silly cuckoo, cuckoo, sounding while Owen was lying in my arms, covered with blood. How shall I ever listen again? He broke off. And I became aware of shame at the unholy joy that filled my artist's mind. And what a fine, thin, keen face he had. And what a voice. In detail is grandeur. The cuckoo's call, the herald of spring, is the harbinger of death and a germ of something in an artist's mind. Small things stand in for the panorama, the individual for the millions, a ghost for the dead. Those four years of blood and love in war were the branding that marked us for good. Feelings so sheer spilling into poetry that changed poetry in English and blighted war forever. We have little time before the blood slows and recollection wanes. And as remembrance ends, it isn't so much the horror of war, the details of blown-off limbs, bullet wounds and filthy mud, as that intense love, that intenser sacrifice, which ought to which still speaks clearly. It seemed that out of battle I escaped, down some profound, dull tunnel, long since scooped through granite, which titanic wars had groined. Yet also there encumbered sleepers groaned, too fast in thought or death to be bestirred. Then, as I probed them, one sprang up, and stared with piteous recognition in fixed eyes, lifting distressful hands as if to bless, and by his smile I knew that sullen hall. By his dead smile I knew we stood in hell, with a thousand fears that vision's face was grained, yet no blood reached there from the upper ground, and no guns thumped or down the flues made moan. Strange friend, I said, here is no cause to mourn. None, said that other, save the undone years, the hopelessness. Whatever hope is yours was my life also. I went hunting wild, after the wildest beauty in the world, which lies not calm in eyes or braided hair, but mocks the steady running of the hour, and if it grieves, grieves richlier than here. For by my glee might many men have laughed, 
and of my weeping something had been left, which must die now. I mean the truth untold, the pity of war, the pity war distilled. Now men will go content with what we spoiled, or discontent, boil bloody and be spilled. They will be swift with swiftness of the tigress. None will break ranks, though nations trek from progress. Courage was mine, and I had mystery. Wisdom was mine, and I had mastery. To miss the march of this retreating world into vain citadels that are not walled. Then, when much blood had clogged their chariot wheels, I would go up and wash them from sweet wells, even with truths that lie too deep for taint. I would have poured my spirit without stint, but not through wounds, not on the cess of war. Foreheads of men have bled where no wounds were. I am the enemy you killed, my friend. I knew you in this dark, for so you frowned yesterday through me as you jabbed and killed. I parried, but my hands were loath and cold. Let us sleep now. In this podcast, Charles Sawley was played by Caleb Obadiah, Robert Graves by Anton Blake, Rupert Brooke was played by Pierre O'Neill Mee, Wilfred Owen by Sam Fairbrother, Ivor Gurney by Ridian Jones, and Siegfried Sassoon by me, Kevin Childs. The song, by a beer side, was by Ivor Gurney to words by John Macefield, and was sung by Sarah Connolly with the Aurora Orchestra conducted by Nigel Short. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.